Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Jerry Rollins was a hard-punching defenseman who fought all the tough guys in the Wild World Hockey Association. A second-round draft selection of the Detroit Red Wings and the WHA Toronto Toros in 1975 Rollins earned the respect of teammates and phones alike as a protector of his team's skilled players. Jerry is an entertaining and thoughtful man who recalls a number of great stories from his playing days, including how his run-in with a future NHL Hall of Famer startled his junior teammates and earned him a spot on the Flynn Flon Bombers roster. A brutal brawl in junior hockey that saw him nearly having his fingers bitten off by a future NHL WHA enforcer. Growing up as the son of NHL MVP and Vesna-winning goalie Al Rollins, who would eventually become Jerry's coach with the WHA Phoenix Roadrunners. His first impressions of a pair of teenagers, Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier, and his surprising comparison of the two at the Indianapolis Racers training camp in 1978. The one player and future movie star who nearly knocked him out with one devastating punch in 1975. And finally, his swan song minor league season in 1978-79 and his impressions of two teammates, Hall of Famer Willie O'Ree and the notorious Billy Goldthorpe. Jerry applied his lessons from his hockey journey to a successful business career in San Diego, California. He is now the co-founder and chairman of Sage Executive Group where he uses his business expertise to mentor and coach CEOs. This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com. Jerry, as the son of a National Hockey League goaltender, growing up around the game in big league arenas and locker rooms, did you always have the goal to also become a major league hockey player yourself? You know, it, it's it's kind of a, a funny story, but uh, I think I started realizing I was not a big hockey fan as a youth. <laughs> and I know that sounds uh, crazy since, you know, 90% or 99% of the people that you interview were passionate, grew up wanting to play. Right. Um, I actually liked just about every other sport more than hockey (laughs) because my remembrance of youth, uh, you know, of course the, the traveling in between, you know, the winter homes and the summer homes, which were typically in the Vancouver area. Right. Uh, you know, I I don't remember a lot of that because my dad kind of finished in the NHL when I was about five. But what I remember after that is growing up in Calgary, which is where my father settled, to uh you know after hockey he continued playing senior hockey and that's when he started coaching he actually uh was the first coach of the university of calgary hockey team and so i remember growing up in dressing rooms and uh playing in the dressing room while the games were going on (laughs) so there was there was always i guess a stick and a roll of tape involved but uh i never really you know there were so many games all the time between him playing and then him coaching that uh, 
it was, you know, it was, just, it was all the time. And I didn't really enjoy it. I liked baseball better. I liked volleyball better. Just about all the sports. <clears throat> when I kind of recognized, you know, Al, when I was 12 years old, wanted to go back into, you know, coaching professionally. And that's when we moved to uh, Spokane, Washington. And I think I started recognizing then when we moved to Spokane from Calgary that, you know, people kind of knew who he was because down there it was a bit of an anomaly at the time in right. Spokane. Hockey was fairly new. <clears throat> and, you know, I think it was the first time they had, you know, probably a coach of his status. And he started bringing in some really good players. And so the year that I spent in Spokane, I got back into hockey because I'd actually quit playing hockey when I was 11. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, I just it just didn't interest me. And my parents didn't force me to do it. My father was never like a sports dad where he demanded that I do that or anything. They just wanted us to be happy and do well in school. So I didn't play hockey. I went back to play in Spokane. And I think when I recognized I kind of enjoyed it, um, our team, our, I think it was a Bantam team, we won the Western United States I think it was called Panaha at the time, mm -hmm. uh, Bantam Championships. We won the whole Western United States Bantam Championships. We had some really good players in that team. And I, I recognize I kind of enjoyed it again, or maybe it was just winning that I enjoyed. And uh, I remember that we were supposed to go play this team in Detroit that had some kids by the name of Howell on it at the time, because I guess they were playing kind of a, a level above themselves at the time. And they won, I guess, the Eastern Championship. And we were supposed to play them, but I think most of the players on our team didn't have the money for travel. Oh, it would have been right. an Eastern trip. And so, and so we didn't do it, and uh, that ended there. And then, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, at the end of that year, my mom and dad got divorced. And so I moved back to actually a place called Surrey, B.C. with my mother and our family. My little brother at the time was uh, four years younger than me. My sister was already in college at the University of Alberta uh, playing volleyball. She's a very good volleyball player. Mm -hmm. And so we moved up to Surrey. And <clears throat> I think, you know, going through a divorce at that, that time, which was kind of not a common thing in Canada. Right. I think it uh, had me, it, it made me, I, I started focusing on sports, baseball and hockey. And my coaches at the time that I still think, you know, great things about really kind of took me under their wing. And I think it was their way to keep me, try and keep me focused. Right. And so, at, you know, 13 years and up, <clears throat> they were uh, great coaches. They were our coaches of our hockey team, our baseball team. And I started realizing I kind of enjoyed it. And, you know, they made me captain of the team for a couple of years. And then I was captain of the junior high team. I won MVP of our junior high school hockey team, which I didn't think I was worthy, but they gave it to me. And I don't know, maybe they just felt sorry for me. I thought there was a lot better players. On the right. <laughs> but, um, and I remember living in Surrey and getting a letter when I was 15, it was from New Westminster Bruins, and it says, you know, you've, I think it said, you've been drafted or selected, and we want you to come to training camp. And I just, it just didn't interest me. 
I just wanted to play in our neighborhood, you know, right. our, our neighborhood teams and have fun. So um, I started kind of wandering. I don't want to say I became a criminal because I was never a criminal, but I kind of started wandering down a bad path, not going to school, um, which kind of culminated at age 17 and me, me being uh, asked to leave school as actually a, a, a meeting with my uncle, my mother, and <clears throat> the principal. And it was like, you need to really focus on school and start coming because I was going and I had a couple jobs because money was important to me. Yeah. And I wanted to make some money, so I had a couple jobs, and that's where I was going when I was skipping school. So I was presented with three options, and, you know, the legend grows in our family. One option was <laughs> <laughs> you can go to school full-time, and you're allowed to play sports, but you're not allowed to work. Option two is go get a job full-time, you know, my mother was a credit manager in a lumber mill, and it's, you can go work at the mill and make really good money and earn a good living. Or this gentleman that worked with my mom, his name was David Rainville, and he played for the Flin Flon Bombers back in the glory days. He was from Flin Flon, he worked with my mom, and he told this guy by the name of Patty Ganell that there was this crazy tough kid in Surrey, BC, right on, you know, who used to be on New Westminster's protected list that you might want to take a look at. <clears throat> so this is about October of the, you know of my 17th year. It's kind of mid-season in the Western Canadian Hockey League. And by the way, I had never been to a Western Canadian Hockey League game. Didn't even know it existed. Wow. Was not a huge was not was not a huge fan. I was a hockey fan. I watched. I went to NHL. You know, Canucks games. I enjoyed playing. But I didn't even know what the Western Hockey League was at the time. And so I chose the hockey route because it was kind of the easiest path. And they said, you know, you can either continue going to school, which I promised my mom I would, and or you can get a job in the mine if you make the team. So I was on a 10-game tryout. I remember the team picked me up in the Vancouver area. They just played New Westminster. And we went to Victoria. I practiced with the team in Victoria for two days and then drove the bus across the country, get to know the guys. We went to this place called Regina, which I'd never been to Regina, Saskatchewan in my life. <clears throat> and I was on a 10 game tryout. And in the first period, if memory doesn't serve me correctly, I was behind the net with the puck and a guy came and just tried to knock me down and I knocked him on his butt and he got up and dropped his gloves and we had a fight and I did really good. And we were on the way to the penalty box and he came after me again and we had a fight and I did really good. And we got kicked out of the game. Um, Dennis Sobjuk, who was on Regina and Ron Andrews, who later played in Montreal and other teams, right. they, uh, they got in a fight as well. And I remember being in the dressing room when the team came in the dressing room and Patty Gunnell, the coach, walked in the dressing room, and the players kind of looking at me strangely. And Patty walked in the dressing room and said, kid, you just made the team. <laughs> and the guy's name was Clark Gillies. That's and interesting. That I and oh, my goodness gracious. Thank God, I, thank God I didn't know who he was and how tough he was. 
Oh boy! I mean, I probably I probably would have turned tail and ran. Oh, absolutely! Probably, if you look at the history of fighting the NHL, there's probably nobody more feared. You didn't want to get him upset. Yeah, even Dave. He is one tough. I mean, you know, talk about one amazing hockey player, amazing human being, and just a you know, in my book, one of the you know, I have guys like Hal and Ferguson and him up there is the toughest guys ever. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, but Clark was an honest guy, and he was he just didn't know why this 17-year-old kid knocked him down, right? It was just, a, a, you know, a normal reaction. But thankfully, he probably took pity on me and didn't beat me to an inch <laughs> of my life. Well, it's got to be quite a so, quite an experience for you. You're just 17. You're just a kid. You don't have a ton of experience. Yep. Like as you said, you didn't really know much about. Even though Flinflom was was big time junior hockey, you didn't really know much about it. All of a sudden, you're out there on the ice and you're getting challenged right away. I mean, you're a good sized guy, and but your teammates respond and your coaches respond immediately to what was end up being a uh, quite a start yeah. to your uh, publicistic endeavors there in uh, in the Western League. Yeah, so, you know, and I was truthfully, uh, you know, at the time from a skills perspective, you know, I don't want anybody to ever think I put myself in the class of Clark Gillies. I don't, I'm, I'm not even in the neighborhood of his level of toughness or skill in any way. Well, not or many people are. Many of the other guys. Uh, Maybe, yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm not one of these guys who looks back at my hockey career and goes, "Oh man, was I ever good?" I look back and say, "Boy, it was a lucky time, and I was lucky at this point, and you know, good things happened." But you know, I had, you know, about 99 minutes and 30 games. I fought all the you know tough guys in the Western Hockey League, the Maxwells and Gasoffs, and you know, you name them, and you know, did really well that year in terms of. You know, if there was trouble, I don't want to say I was the go-to enforcer because I certainly wasn't. You know, we had guys like Dennis Polinich on the team, Ron right. Andra, Blaine Stout. I mean, it was it was an amazing hockey team that year. I think just about everybody on the team turned pro. But um, you know, it was a uh, it was a, a mind and going to you know coming from a big city like Vancouver, and I'd lived in Calgary. And going to Flinflon, Manitoba was kind of a, a wake-up call. It was a, you know, wonderful people there. Some of my friends that I still have today that live there still. Wonderful city, but it was kind of a culture shock as well going there. And I broke my promise to my mom about staying in school. I was offered the, the school program, which I think paid $150 a month if you stayed in high school, or I could work in the mine part-time and make... You know the numbers escaped me, but I think it was more like a thousand or twelve hundred a month. So I went for the money, dropped out of school. Right, well, that's understandable. It, in it's, my, yeah. You really got to grow up in a okay. hurry, though. I mean, when I, when most kids are yeah. seventeen, I mean, you're away yeah. from home. You're you're with guys who are yeah. older than you in, in many cases, and it's competitive mm-hmm. as as heck and physical. Yeah. And challenging, um, and you've got to, like I said, it, it's you're 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 stepping onto a, a pretty big stage of junior hockey at that point. And as I said, right off the bat, you're you're creating a reputation for yourself uh, physically. A lot of here's my I don't know exactly how I want to phrase this, but now 
how are you feeling about this uh, this circumstance now? Now all of a sudden, you are considered to be a tough guy, a guy who's going to come to the aid of maybe a, a teammate who's in a little, who's maybe getting bullied or something. And all every time you go into a, a rink, you've got tough guys who want to make it just like you do and who are challenging you. Is that what is the feeling like? Is it fear? Is it uh, you know, business as usual? What I is was, that? You know, and anyone that says they aren't afraid is, you know, crazy. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a, a true story. Patty Gunnell, who was the coach of the Flim Flon Bombers and later, you know, he was kind of a Western Hockey League legend. Patty was a really tough guy. He definitely ruled by fear, um, you know, at least with me. Right. <laughs> and maybe other people he treated differently. And, you know, I knew my role and I knew that that's how I got the job and that's how I would keep it. And I remember before a game, I remember going in his dressing room. He asked me to go in there, and I went in and looked, sat down, and I thought I was either getting cut or something was happening. <laughs> and he looked at me, and it was the only time I ever remember him twice that he was kind of a sensitive guy. He looked at me, and he said, are you scared about the team tonight? And I looked at him, and I went, oh, boy, I don't think there's a right answer here. So I'm going <laughs> to tell the truth. Yeah, I'm terrified. I, 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 I think we were playing Medicine Hat or something, which was like McCrim and Gasoff, Maxwell Dean. I mean, just, right. you go through the list, there are a bunch of monsters, right? And, you know, I had other players. The one thing about our team is we stuck together, but I was the designated guy at the time. And so I remember just saying, yeah, I'm terrified. And he said, you know what? They're more scared than you are. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, they're all older than you. They're bigger than you. They've got bigger reputations. You're expected to lose. So if you do, it's expected. If right. you win, wow. <laughs> and but, if you draw, which is what most times happen, eh, no harm. But don't run away from your fear. That's a good perspective. And now, just very, very quickly, moving yeah. ahead, that you talk about lessons yeah. you learned in life at a young age. Mm -hmm. And now, yep. as you, in your life, you're counseling other people. Uh, and I'm sure part of that is facing your fears and working through them. So these experiences at a very early in life, I'm sure, still resonate with you today. You know, my, I'm actually writing it all down and I've been writing it down for years and I'm in the process of putting it in a, in, in a book form because, you know, the lessons I learned in hockey about teamwork, about grit, dedication, facing your fears were more applicable for me in business than they were in sports. I was probably too young and immature to be a good student of the game or a business at that age. But what I learned from the, let's say my years at 17 through 24, that was really where I got my MBA in terms of beginning to go out into the world and, you know, have a business career. And, and so those lessons learned, I think were invaluable and I think are applicable across life, whether it, you know, relate to being in business, starting a company, facing competition. I think there are a lot of parallels. I, you know, I don't want to think of business as a game because it's not. But that's how I went into business. I created and looked at it just like a game. 
Right. And we're going to get to that uh, momentarily. But first, one guy you played with, you know, you didn't have to handle all the, uh, the, the fighting. You played with a couple of other, oh, a lot of other tough guys and junior, Cam Connor among them. Yeah. And the other yeah. I wanted to ask you about was Kim Claxon. Now, I remember, yeah. I remember Kim Claxon as a fan. I was a fan of the uh, New England Whalers and he would come out on the ice and he would dart out of his dressing room, skate into the other end of the ice where the other team was warming up and whip around just to make a statement and then come back to his side. He would get into fights with everybody. He'd never get a cut on his face despite all of it, uh, but he never backed down. I was curious what it was like having Kim Claxon as a as a teammate. Yeah, Kim, Kim was a courageous guy. Kim, you know, and Kim and Cam were both just super good people. And I was close to them. That was my second year of junior. We were all new on the team together. Uh, Cam was just coming from Winnipeg. Kim had come from Victoria. And uh, in later years, uh, Frazier, the um, the uh, the uh, referee, wrote in his book. He mentioned the three of us that his first game that he ever uh, carry Frazier. Right. The first game he ever refereed in junior hockey or, or in professional ranks was a game where it was Saskatoon against Flinflon in Flinflon. And he wrote about the teams coming to Flinflon getting the Flinflon flu. <laughs> Players would actually be so terrified they'd get ill on the way there and not play in the game. Right. Literally happened. That's you'd go out on the ice and you'd go, hey, where, where's uh, Tom? Oh, Tom's sick. <laughs> oh, okay. But if you can imagine, and, and, you know, the cast did not end there. there. There were five or six other tough guys. But when you faced our team, you faced all of us. So, you know, I just pity. I used to actually feel sorry for tough guys and other teams that came to Flin Flon and had to face that motley crew because there was no win. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Kim and Cam both certainly went on and made their marks in professional hockey as well. And yeah, both super tough guys and neither of them would ever back down from anyone. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was my last year of junior, I was playing in Flin Flon. Uh, Patty Gannell left Flin Flon. He took Kim Claxon with him to Victoria in my last year of junior. <clears throat> we played in, uh, we played against Victoria and Victoria had, players like LaPointe and Bridgman and Frazier and Kim. And they're a pretty tough team. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Patty put together a collection of animals again. <clears throat> and I was playing on a team in Winnipeg where I was kind of the only guy, for lack of a better description. Oh, and, right. You know, right. My, defense, my defense partner was Kevin McCarthy, who's a wonderful, amazing player and coach. You yes. know, he now coaches in, in Nashville. And Kevin would never back down from anybody and always had my back, but I think Kevin weighed about 170 pounds. So in one game in junior, I, I call it the massacre. It was in Winnipeg. I think we lost 10 to 2 because um, Victoria had a very good team. But I fought Claxton once and put him down. I fought him twice and put him down. And again, like you say with Kim, you never – cut him because he was just too tough right but i had him on the ice twice um i fought bridgman before that as well he was a tough um, ombre as well mel bridgman you know i don't i didn't see that in junior 
you know, I guess he was later professionally. Maybe right. he developed. I didn't see it in junior. I never looked at him as, wow, what a tough guy. I thought he was a pretty good player. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, so in my in my third fight, I had Kim on the ice, and I was on top of him. And, of course, Patty was really mad because it's right by their bench. And Patty's looking at me going, oh, my God, how am I going to – what am I going to do now? <laughs> Knocks down Bridgman, takes out Claxton twice. And so Kim had a <laughs> – Kim, if he was ever on the bottom, you had to keep his, your hands away from his mouth <laughs> because he liked, he liked to bite fingers off. And having been a, a teammate of his in a, in a past life, I actually saw him where he you know, bit, bit a guy's finger off. Right. The tip of it. And so uh, I started feeling nibbling at my fingers. Oh. So I moved my hands out. His helmet was loose, so I took his helmet off and cracked him over the head with it. And that was a mistake because I got gang tackled by the whole Victoria bench and almost got killed. I would imagine. Like I think I woke, I think I woke up ten minutes later, and uh, you know I think my teammates tried to help, but you know Victoria was a pretty rough crew, and uh, between Frazier and Bridgman and Kim, I think they used the ice as a uh, a rebound for my head. <laughs> well, so it, that was uh, one of the crazy times. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Like as I said, it's hard to imagine. It just it really is. You know, it's just it's tough, and you've got to you've got to just uh, hold your ground and um, you know be ready for that every single night at a very young age. And you know that year you certainly mm -hmm. did. Uh, Four hundred and seventy three penalty minutes, just sixty two games, shouldering the load. Let me ask you. I, I gotta ask one more question about about, about the the, the mm -hmm. fighting fighting part of the game. Do you ever just get tired of it? Do you ever just say to yourself, "Man, it hurts. My hands hurt. My knuckles hurt." Um, you, you go to a game. You played on, let's say, a Tuesday night. You got a game on a Thursday. You ever just like just not want to do it? You know, I think when I got to the pros, I felt that way. But in junior, I was just a stupid kid, and it never ever bothered me. You know, there was times like the game against Victoria went, "Am I crazy? Should I should I be doing this?" But no, it really never entered my mind. It's just what I did. Right. And um, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, some somebody my my coach. I remember Muzz McPherson, who was my coach in Winnipeg that year, and he later coached Gretzky when he was in Sault Ste. Marie. The following couple of years, is I remember Muzz saying to me, "You know, Jerry, if you had 350 minutes in penalties, I think I ended that year with like 30 points. He'd say you probably have 60 points, and you'd be like a number one draft choice." And I'd say. Yeah, but did you see that guy take a shot at McCarthy in the first period? Would you have allowed me to not take an action on that? So I guess I was always in this mental state of defending my teammates. It wasn't like I was this dominant, crazy goon. I was more of a defender than an offensive right. tough guy. No, absolutely. Um so if I knew there was a tough guy in the other team and I, you know, I'd open the program, who's the toughest guy? That's the guy with 250 minutes last year. Who is he? Okay, might as well take care. I always believe that if you initiate, it's better than receiving. Right. So I figured if there was a fight, fight was going to happen, I was going to be on the starting end of it versus the receiving end. So another, that's another. how I played the game. 
but um, men, mentally and emotionally, yeah, it does wear on you. <laughs> yeah, it does wear on you. But I didn't play as long. I mean, I think in total I was in 100-plus fights. I probably did okay. I, I, I think I was only in one fight where somebody hit me hard enough that I was, like, knocked out on my feet. And uh, that was one of the, the famous Carlson brothers. I'm assuming Jack. And, uh, no, God, no. I did great against Jack. Really? Two fights against Jack. My teammates were like, wow, you did great against him. He Once when he was playing, I can't remember. I think once when he was in Minnesota, once when he was in Edmonton, Jeff Carlson absolutely clocked me. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that it was a fight. My teammate said, you must have hit him 20 times, and he just looked at you, and then he hit you once, and they said, because I never went down, they said, you clinched, you know, it was apparent something was going on, you came to the bench, you sat down, and then came in the dressing room, and that's when I woke up. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the only time I ever remember, and no, it wasn't Big Jack, it was Jeff, and Jeff absolutely knock me out that's uh that's very interesting and jack was yeah. considered by many uh obviously to be yeah. one of the top two or three fighters in the league at least so if not the best yeah. and he uh in yeah. hartford of course we saw him square off with nick Fatiu. and but going yeah. back to your now you're, you're you're finishing up in junior getting a lot of notice from major league clubs you drafted in the second mm-hmm. round by the detroit red, red wings in the second round by the yeah. wha toronto toros um, I, I would assume your decision to go to Toronto was based on the uh, expectation of being able to play Major League Hockey right away and being paid accordingly. No. <laughs> it, was, it was absolutely, I, was, I would love to tell you that's the truth, but that's not the truth. All right. I was not, um, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this, I was not in control of my career at that point. I was not in control of my money. I was doing what people told me to do, and I had an agent. And what transpired is Rick LaPointe was chosen by the Toronto Toros in the first round, and I was in the second. Rick LaPointe was chosen by the Detroit Red Wings in the first round, and I was the second. The, our attorney or agent was the same for both of us. So he was working both teams saying, do you want to get both or lose both? And so I, in effect, Rick, I didn't sign till like a week before training camp. Rick LaPointe signed with Detroit and Toronto got scared. They're going to lose their first two draft choices. So in effect, I got decent, almost, almost first round money for going to Toronto. And we had an underage player that year, but I don't think he was even in the draft called Mark Napier. Right. And Toronto was terrified of not having an enforcer because they had a tremendously talented team the year before, went into San Diego in the playoffs, and and San Diego destroyed them, just ran them off the ice. So they wanted um, what they thought was, you know, some crazy Western Hockey League (laughs) nut job that could come out and defend all their skill players. Right. So, nope. I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know that. I didn't even know if I'd make the Toronto team. I just went to training camp a week after I signed in Finland and luckily made the team. Very interesting team to begin your major league career with. You have uh, 
first of all, he went through six goaltenders that year before finally ending up with John Garrett from the folded uh, Minnesota Fighting yeah. Saints. A little, uh, yeah. a little problem in the uh, between the pipes there. But you also had some big names in hockey, some legends. I'd like to quick recollections about uh, number one, of course, the Big M, uh, Frank Mahovlich. Yeah, Frank was, you know, and I'll tell you three people that really tried to take me under their wing. Frank Mahovlich was one of them. He was a he was a gentleman in every you know t- every uh, way he did business. How he went to the rink, watching him play for me was just amazing because he could literally, you know, he was definitely it wasn't the NHL anymore. I think he was playing more for the money, but when he turned it on, he was still one of the most dominating players I've ever seen. Vakla, another guy, Vaclav Netamansky, who was on that team, I think was another, you know, if he came into the league today, he'd be like Yarmir Yager in terms of his career. Right. But back then with all, all the crazies running around, you know, he was a big, powerful, you know, Mark Napier was in his early days. Um, Jim Dory was my defense partner. Jim really took me under his wing, had me to his house for dinner a lot, really on the road, tried to make sure I didn't do anything stupid. He was really almost like a father figure. And then Paul Henderson also was just, Paul probably tried to keep me, you know, out of the bars drinking beer, right. which is I should have probably listened to him at the time. Exactly. <laughs> we were young and crazy, and you know we had a bunch of young single guys, Napier and Turkowitz and myself and Peter Marin, and we had a bunch of young guys, and we had some fun. But Paul was there to try and you know make sure you didn't make those mistakes. But unfortunately, at that age, I didn't listen really well. Well. Very few of us do, but that's a great group of mentors to begin your career with. Oh, yeah. Some of the all-time great uh, players, like you said about Nedimansky. He came into the league uh, at a you know, at a time when, uh, as you said, toughness was uh, paramount. Uh, he was a great international player, and I think that year he he had fifty-six goals. But uh, had he come into the yeah. league, you know, uh, you know, earlier or later or whatever, um, I think people would have appreciated him more. But he certainly it was a big deal when he came over in 1974. Uh, and I think he's doing a little movie or documentary about that as well right now. Yeah, right? his son is do, his son is doing a documentary on his, his life. And he is kind of a forgotten man, although, you know, he did a heck of a job putting, helping put together the Vegas team this year oh absolutely amazing he's an amazing uh talent evaluator he and richard farda was the other right uh, chuck player on our team and they were both just wonderful gentlemen uh but you know in my career looking back he was one of the guys that i looked at and went wow that guy had all the tools and you know obviously had a good career yeah, absolutely, and a, a legend indeed. You um, and the the team. It's an interesting year in Toronto, and I I could go on and on. But I don't want to. I want to be sensitive to a time here as well. But you mm-hmm. have uh, you're in Toronto. You're in Hockey Central. You're sharing. Uh, Maple Leaf Gardens with the Maple Leafs. The rent is exorbitant. John Bassett uh, moves the team to Birmingham. But John was quite an eccentric character, an interesting guy to be sure. Do you have any inter uh, interactions with him of note? You know, he was um, he was a gentleman. He was eccentric. He was truly a visionary in terms of 
the things that he did and he was very, you know, he was always very nice and thoughtful and good to the players. Everything, my my interactions with him were all very positive. But, you know, I wasn't one of the big stars that hung out with him. So I was the first player to go down to Birmingham with him. He asked, you know, players to come down there to c- try and kick it off. And so I was the first player to go to Birmingham. And, um, you know, he really sold the sport in that market and, um, did a good job you know they had an arena built for them we had you know good crowds the first year from what i recall and um what i do recall is sometimes i don't think he managed his cash appropriately right (laughs) which is which is what i try and teach people so i had a signing bonus and i don't think they had intentions of trading me but with the move and the expenses and everything, they couldn't pay my signing bonus the second half of it when we got to Birmingham. And before game one, they came to me and said, hey, can you wait a year or two for that? And it's like, uh, no. And so they notified me about a week later that I'd been traded because, again, it was an economic. At the time, it was an economic move. They just they could take enough, they could take an equal salary on, but they couldn't pay the signing bonus. So I got traded to Phoenix. Luckily, before I got traded to Phoenix, uh, I went on a a blind date with Mark Napier's girlfriend's best friend and met my wife, Terry. And we've been married 41 years now. She's from Birmingham, Alabama. So I was destined to go to Birmingham for something, and that's what it was. Absolutely. That's a great story. And it was all yeah. it was all worth it. The uh, the eight games in Birmingham changed your life, and uh, to have a marriage that's uh, going strong after uh, four decades uh, says a lot as well. It's not easy to do. Um, but speaking of family type of things, you leave Birmingham and you have a very interesting circumstance that very few players have ever had, and that is you go to the Phoenix Roadrunners, and your father is the coach. I was curious, yeah. what, so, what was that like? <laughs> well, you go from hating the coach, you know, the, I guess the good news is every minor leaguer, I guess growing up, my best friends were always the coach's sons, and they're, they're still friends of mine today. And so I didn't hate the coach's son. Uh, and, you know, Phoenix, it was interesting, and, you know, playing for your father and at the time I was kind of reestablishing my relationship with them as well. Cause we weren't really connected from the time I was 13 until probably uh, 19 when I started, you know, seeing him at uh, when he was scouting for Phoenix or, you know, other teams. Right. And so it was really, I was reestablishing my relationship. So um, some of the players knew him better than I did. Some of the players had, gone from Salt Lake with them to Phoenix, Salt Lake in the Western League, yeah. to Phoenix, and they'd been, they'd also played for him back in Spokane, so he'd had relationships with them for seven, eight, nine years, whereas I was just reestablishing. So, you know, I guess the great news is we did reestablish our relationship. Um, we, um, I found him to be the best teacher I ever played for. In other words, he taught me more about the game that year than I ever learned in prior years. I think I improved my skills that year, you know, uh, pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. I actually it was the first time I played forward. We had a, a 
a lot of defensemen and I skate fairly well. So he experimented with myself and one of my friends from Flin Flon, Dwayne Bray, we were both big 6'3 defensemen. He put us up front right. and we ended up playing together. And um, so, you know, he, it was a good experience. It was a positive experience in reestablishing my relationship. And Phoenix is a great town to play hockey in. I really enjoyed my time there. Unfortunately, you know, the writing was on the wall and the team was gone at the end of the year. They had a, a solid fan base. You know, they would get that six or 7,000 yep. and just couldn't get beyond it, yep. which is just like a lot of teams. And I, I would maybe put Birmingham in that category, Houston in that category, <laughs> that if they had time to develop, uh, would have become good major league markets at that time. Um, but, you know, it's a shame to yeah. see Phoenix go at the end of 76, 77. Um, but an interesting kind of, you know, again, you're playing with your dad. Uh, now it's a great year for you because you've met your future wife. You've reconnected with your father. Yep. Uh, the franchise, unfortunately, uh, is uh, on shaky ground financially. The league itself goes from 12 teams to eight. And uh, the next season, you find yourself bouncing around a little bit um, between Toledo, Philadelphia, the American League, and Kalamazoo. Um, what was that yep. experience like? You you came right out. You didn't play a game. Well, you didn't play a game in the minors. You came right out. You signed a contract in Toronto. Yeah. And uh, now you got a little upheaval in 77, 78. What's that experience like? Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, unfortunately I shouldn't have uh, made the move I did. Um, Ted Lindsay came when I was in Phoenix. He came to see myself and Robbie Fatorik play. Probably, he was probably there more for Robbie than he was for me. Right. <laughs> to say. But because um, Robbie was still Detroit property and Ted convinced me, you know, he was an old school hockey guy and he really convinced me he, that I had an opportunity in Detroit. And so I signed a three year contract with Detroit. You know, I still had a, a year left on my contract with the WHA, which I ended up getting paid for later. But uh, he convinced me. And when I got to training camps, so I trained hard all summer, went to training camp. And I had, you know, nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared who I was. Uh, didn't have a locker. <laughs> no. It was literally who are you and why are you here? Well, you know, I've got a contract that says I'm playing for the Detroit Red Wings. And so it, it, I just basically was the forgotten, you know, one of the forgotten men. And, you know, it, it was what it was, but it was just a bad business decision. I should not have gone to as dysfunctional an organization at the time as it was. So I went from bad business environment to a dysfunctional organization at the time. And they later, really straighten the organization out. They became one of the best. Yeah, but absolutely. at the time it was it was the uh, it was just not a good place to be in their system. There was as a matter of fact, I would say there was no such thing as a system and I'm not surprised that nobody knew who I was because they probably didn't know who half the players were. Right. It goes to show you how fate and coincidence sometimes play a hand. Yeah. You know, you had great fate the yep. year before. You met your wife. It was awesome in Birmingham. Yep. Uh, yep. The next year, your career, and it's happened so many times with, with players. I, I look back at just circumstance. You end up in the wrong place at the wrong time, yep. and um, what happens, happens. But the next year, 78, 79... First of all, back in the IHL, must you played with a guy named Mike yeah. Mike Ruzioni, who you, yeah. wouldn't have wouldn't have guessed that two years later would become the most famous hockey player on the planet. Yeah, and uh, 
Mike, Mike was just a wonderful person and a great leader. I mean, if you, if I had never heard his name again, I still would have remembered him. I still got a pair. They shipped me his skates once, um, uh, for some reason, they shipped them to me instead of him after I left there. Oh. And so I've got a pair of uh, Ruzioni Lang skates sitting in the garage still to this <laughs> day. <laughs> and I'm not sending them back, not. But, uh, it, you know, great guy. You know, that year was uh, a painful year, is what I would say. You know, I probably had 300 minutes in penalties fight, fighting every crazy guy on the planet. Uh Every time Detroit needed a player in another system, they'd ship me in. So it was it was um, it's almost like playing on a travel team. It was just right. a miserable, miserable year. Uh, so go ahead. Um, go ahead. No, I'm the next year, seventy-eight, seventy-nine is interesting. Uh, you play. You're back in the WHA. You're back with a team yep. that has financial issues, and uh, you get the privilege of playing uh, alongside a 17-year-old kid, Wayne Gretzky. And I, I thought, obviously, you had heard about him prior to him uh, playing for the racers. My question is, when you saw him, uh, what, what was your impression of Wayne as a player and as a person at 17, 18 years old? Well, I had two interactions with him before that. So when I was, I think I was 15, 16 or 15 or 16, I went to a Vancouver Canucks game. And they had Wayne come on the ice and do a skills competition. He must have been like 11 years old at the time Mm -hmm. or 12. But they had him come do some kind of a skills thing. And I remember looking at him going, wow. And I kind of, you know, remembered the name. The the first year I was in Toronto playing for the Toros, my old coach from junior, Muzz McPherson, called me he was coaching Wayne he says you got to come see this kid so I had a night off I went down to St. Catharines and watched him this skinny little kid destroy the other team Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. went in the dressing room after the game and met him and he was just a very very thoughtful polite I mean just kind of like you'd want your son or daughter to behave he was just a, a very articulate guy and then, you know, fast forward, I go in the dressing room a couple of years later, and here's this pimply-faced kid that drove in in a Trans Am that had to leave practice early to go to high school. So Pat Stapleton, who I found out later was the one that wanted me to be in Indianapolis to kind of be the defender of Wayne, right? Mm-hmm. And he had he had come after me, signed me to a three-year contract. So I was there with Wayne, and Pat came in the dressing room before a shift, in practice in training camp and he said do me a favor jerry just just go out and hit him clean but hit him a couple times see how you respond give him a shot and pat was not a guy that would you know have you go out and hurt somebody so i said okay pat and so i went out in the ice and for the whole practice i chased him around because <laughs> you know i don't think he was i don't think he was faster than me he certainly wasn't as big. He never, I didn't think he could see me coming, but every time I went to hit him, he just totally evaporated. Great. And it was a, it was such a funny story. It just stuck in my mind. So <laughs> kind of, you know, halfway through practice, I went to Pat and I said, Pat, get somebody else. There's no way you can that guy. <laughs> but I said, I'm happy to play defense on the same line as him because if anybody does hit him, I'll take care of it. And, you know, and, and Wayne was just, he was a gentleman. He was nice. The kid that impressed me in camp that year was Messier. Right. And he was a man-child. I mean, that guy was a, 
I mean, physically so beyond his years and uh, just an amazing athlete. But that's the guy, if I were to have told you back then who I thought would be the better of the two, I would have said Messier. <laughs> because I thought yeah. he had to be physical. I thought he had to be physical to be a hockey player, and Wayne proved me. And it's funny, in Wayne's book, 99 Stories, he's got a couple pages in there about my father and his career. I guess he looked up to him in a paragraph about me. So it's kind of like a Hall of Famer and a Hall of Shamer in the same family. Well, <laughs> well he uh, certainly... For yourself, you've had a, an opportunity here to uh, play with some of the all-time greats and you get to know them. And, and speaking of that, you know, the, 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 the racers, of course, uh, mm -hmm. dissolve. Um, and you go to a very interesting league at the time, wrapping your career up in the Pacific Hockey League, a, a league that kind of gets forgotten in time. But your team in San Diego, every single player on there it was a major league player the, the WHA had shrunk yeah. so there's a lot of talent in that league uh, your team with Joe Norris Rhea Duno Kevin Devine etc cetera, etc cetera. but you also play with a guy who has recently been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and uh, broke the color barrier he was playing his final season of pro hockey Willie O'Ree and I was yeah. uh, curious about your uh, memories of, of Willie as a player and a person as a person, again, what you see is what you get. He's just a kind-hearted gentleman, affable, funny, comedic, always light. But as an athlete, I was 24, probably in the best shape of my life, and there was probably one player on the team in better shape than me, and that was Willie O'Ree. He still had a washboard stomach, rock-hard arms, legs. I mean, the guy was just such a physical specimen and kept himself in such amazing shape. Hmm. and was probably still the fastest guy on the team right. at that age. So just, you know, an amazing person, amazing gentleman. I'm so glad for the accolades he's received, which are greatly deserved. And, you know, when, when you try and tell people that, you know, I used to play hockey and they tell, you know, they ask you who the most memorable people, you know, they always expect me to say, you know, Gretzky or Messier or how, and, you know, Willie O'Ree comes up. Guy was just an amazing athlete and person. Um, another player, maybe on the other end of the, of the spectrum, I have to ask you about on that team was, I have to ask you if he's as crazy as people say he was, is Billy Goldthorpe. <laughs> Bill and I were friends and Ron Ingram asked me to become Bill's friend because he said we want Bill on the team because he scares people to death but he also scares our teammates to death and Bill respected me and always in the back of his mind knew that if something happened, I could take him down. So Bill and I had a very good relationship. He didn't have any, you know, most of us have an on-off button. He had no off button. And so it was as dangerous in practice with him there as it was in a game. But it was his teammates who were in danger. Right. Well, you were on his good side, and that uh, called an end to... Uh, your career that last year in San Diego. And I was curious, I know we went a little mm -hmm. over overtime today, but just I wanted to, yep. you end your career in San Diego. I assume you then settle there. 
and yep. um, now you begin your transition out of hockey. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, the, you know the, those early years, yeah. and now you, you you've gone into you're going to be into owning several businesses and end up being very very successful in San Diego. How does that road start at the end of your career, in 1979? Well, it, it started with you know early in my life. I read a book, Life After Hockey. I think Stan Fischler wrote it. And it was about the great tragedies and successes of former hockey players and how those that hung on to the game became tragedies and those that forgot about it, learned from it, and moved on, became successful. So I determined that, you know, as a matter of fact, I remember that summer because I still had a three-year guaranteed contract from the WHA. And so... Um, Glenn Sather actually was going to buy my contract and take me to Edmonton that summer. And I knew that my options, opportunities that, you know, that I, I wasn't the most talented player in the world. I wanted some control of my destiny. I'd been in like eight cities in four years and the economics of hockey at the time, at the time we didn't know if Edmonton would survive. And so I opted to take a buyout on my contract. So that basically funded me to go out and go into business. So first thing I did is, you know, what does a former goon with a grade 11 education do? You go into sales, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so luckily I went into sales and I had the, you know, the forethought to say, you know, I'm going to go to work for a great company with a great coach. And I did. And I learned a lot about business and a lot about selling and creating revenue. And so that was my business MBA. We built the company and sold it. I did not have equity in the company, but I was instrumental in helping it grow. So my what I learned is there's this thing called equity in business. And if you have equity, you have some control. So mm -hmm. my next three businesses I was in, I helped grow them. I typically go into a company that was not functioning well, build a great team, grow the revenue dramatically, with an exit in mind. So I did that three times and uh, not having an education, I was always a part of CEO peer groups where I could go learn from other people. Those became invaluable to me. So when people started asking me, people that I respected to be their business coach, I, I, I knew it was a great responsibility and I didn't take it lightly and it, it was important to me to do a good job at that. So seven years ago, I started a business coaching for CEOs business mm -hmm. and now have close to 150 CEOs that I work with. And, you know, probably six, seven billion in revenue in, in all of those companies and, you know, 10,000 employees collectively. So that's my passion is, I guess, growing up, I never recognized that the you know the guy who wasn't a very good player could become a very good coach and so maybe there's something to be said there for being a, a coach which i would have done in sports but it's just too insecure you can't control your testing right and i do wonder sometimes so, about the silver lining you played for some unstable yeah, leagues yeah. and teams so you're always in flux yeah. And that's got to have, yeah. uh, like you said, gaining some control yeah. of your life. Uh, you know, yeah. Maybe those things yeah. end up being a positive for you. You had no security as a player, yeah. um, but you were able to create your own security by selling and creating revenue. And ultimately, yeah. that's uh, anybody who can generate revenue consistently is going to have 
some level of security in life. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it, you know, control is an illusion, but at least I had more control than I had as an athlete. And again, why I didn't go into coaching in, in hockey was because I didn't like the insecurity friends of mine who went into it. You know, it seemed like every two years they're on a new team and coaching a new team. And if they were successful, they were okay for a year or two, then they were gone. Right. <laughs> so, um, I'm glad to see some stability come to the coaching in professional sports. And I love franchises like Chicago and Nashville, where they have these great leadership teams that they stick with and they don't change every two years at the whim of an owner. So well, also, uh, good yeah. to see stability coming to the sport. Absolutely. And just, I know we only have a couple of minutes, but um, the, as far as security is concerned, we talked about, you just talked about how you, you've been in San Diego now for almost 40 years, or actually 40 years, yep. and you now have relationships with at least 150 CEOs that you uh, work with uh, at Sage. Building up that network, creating that network, uh, what's your advice to people about that? I, I told my kids that all the time, when you're young, and you were young. To, you know, to get your career yep. started in, in business. Um, when you build that network, it will help you weather all kinds of uh, difficult times and allow you to prosper. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's become um, uh, very, you know, in, in the olden days, we used to call them Rolodexes. <laughs> right. And it's having an effective Rolodex where, you know, it, if you have a Rolodex back in the old day, the only good part is if you picked up and called somebody in it, would they return your call? And I'm proud to say that 90% of the people I've known in life will return the call. Right. And so now you can take technology and multiply that with this tool called LinkedIn, which one of your former um, interviewees has built a network through LinkedIn. And I, suggest that people in business, whether it be LinkedIn or some other venue, utilize that to really build a meaningful network of people who you, um, I think by doing something for people and expecting nothing back, you develop a network of people who will do anything they can to help you. Right. Well, that's very good advice. And we went way over time and I greatly appreciate it because I could have talked to you for another hour. Um, but uh, Jerry, I really appreciate uh, not only reflections on your career, but some uh, sage advice, if you will, for uh, career management. And um, again, thank you so much and good luck going forward. I hope we can stay in contact uh, through LinkedIn and however else going forward. Mark, my pleasure, and thank you. And, yeah, you can now say you had the worst hockey player ever in your interview here, right? <laughs> uh, you know, hey, when you make it to the major leagues, it's all relative. And uh, I think it's a, it was a great accomplishment. And uh, I was glad to see. I think the thing I, I, that resonates with me with you and your career is the lessons learned along the way, the application to your post-career and the success you've had as a result of that. So it's uh, it was great to talk to a big leaguer, and I uh, both as a hockey player and a business person, and um, I hope to uh, have the chance to chat with you again. Mark, we will. Thanks, Jerry. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org. 
This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com.